Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. I'm Evelyn Marcus. And I'm Phyllis Zembler-Miller. Ayan Hersey Ali is our guest today. She's one of the boldest and most courageous thought leaders since 9-11. Ayan will discuss with us the current shockwave of anti-Semitism, the roots and dangers of it, and how to turn it around. Ayan Hersi Ali was born in Somalia, lived in Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia, and as a teenager in Kenya, where she became a member of the global radical Islamic movement, the Muslim Brotherhood. She escaped an arranged marriage, got asylum in the Netherlands, the country I come from, and became a member of the Dutch parliament. After 9-11, <clears throat> she left Islam and made the film Submission together with Dutch filmmaker Theo van Gogh. She wrote the global bestseller Infidel and made other best-selling books and many other best-selling books. Ayan is the founder of the AHA Foundation that advocates for women's rights and other Western values. She's a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Ayan, we're so honored to have you with us to discuss anti-Semitism. Thank you for being here. Evelyn, it's always lovely to see you, my dear friend. That's likewise. That's likewise, Ayan. So can you please tell us about your upbringing and your years in the radical Muslim Brotherhood in relation to anti-Semitism? So um, I was born in Somalia. I've told this story many times. This is in 1969. I just turned 54 years old, which makes me feel... I don't feel old, but it makes me feel old. 54 is quite a long time, five decades long. It's nothing. I uh, <laughs> I don't feel it's like I said, but I mean, I'm reflecting on five decades. So yeah. if people in your program are in their, you know, 20s, maybe late teens, uh, I'll have to give them, uh, try to give them a picture of growing up in Somalia, it was uh, in the 1970s, there was in Somalia a great deal of hope that we were establishing a nation state. Um, the colonial powers, Somalia was colonized by Italy, by uh, Britain, uh, and a small part of it in Djibouti by the French. They had just left. So maybe a similarity with Israel is that we were a budding young nation state full of hope which didn't work out that way for us because the country of 10 years in was seized by a military dictator and things turned out not so well. And that's the reason why for my family, my father was active in politics. So he had to leave. Um, he fled, he was put in prison and he fled prison. And my mother took me, my brother and my sister out. And we were small children. I think I was about eight years old. So before I was eight years old, I didn't know anything about anti-Semitism or Jews or anything actually about life. And uh, the only uh, word I knew, Yahud, mm. was a slur. Uh, when my mother got really angry with one of us, with other people, and she wanted to express how mean and awful they were and how much contempt she had for this person, that's when she would use the word Yahud. Um, and aside from being a slur, memories of the word Yehud also means enemy, worst enemy. 
you know, I hate you, like I hate the Yehud. That was also very common. So then my family moved to Saudi Arabia, um, and there uh, we lived in Mecca, we lived in Riyadh, and we lived in Jeddah. And each time we were in a neighborhood populated by refugees from the Palestinian territories. And so it was very common to hear Yehud uh, in every conceivable negative way that you can think of. And I remember when we lived in Saudi Arabia, it was always issues with water. They were putting up new buildings and the plumbing was either just being put in or it wasn't quite right. But my mom would open the tap expecting water to come out and it would instead air would start shooting out. And it was just common for her to say, oh, those Yehud, they're at it again, the Jews. So I, I just want to describe how common it was. It was so common, we took it for granted. We didn't think twice about it. Yes. The, the, the word Jew or Jewish uh, as a slur, as a sign of enmity, as uh, an expression of contempt, but also as evildoers, synonymous with evil and the devil. That's how I grew up. Wow. And, and then when I became, so now I'm going to fast forward. Um, when I was in Saudi Arabia, it was before I was 10 years old. When I come to Kenya, I'm 10 years old and I start going to school there. And now I uh, get to learn to, I go to an English speaking language as well. I learn English and I am, I don't want to say I was educated, but uh, I could read, I could write. The world was opening to me. We were going to movies, etc. And I was about 15 years old when the Muslim Brotherhood, members of the Muslim Brotherhood, came to our neighborhoods and our schools. And uh, they were doing what they called outreach, da'wah. Uh, these days, I just tend to call it indoctrination. We were being indoctrinated and we didn't know that. And they gave us a much better picture of the Yehud, of the Jews and what they were doing. And again, I'm going back and forth. Now in my fifties, I know what antisemitism is. I know of the second world war. I know of the Nazi propaganda. And so now I can say what they were injecting into our neighborhoods in 1985 when I was a teenager, was Nazi propaganda. The Jews with horns, with the blood libel, controlling the world, and with our duty, and this is the Islamic twist to it, our duty then was not to sit back and watch this enemy destroy us and destroy our religion and destroy the people we love, but that we take the initiative and destroy them. Wow. And what were you supposed to do as a teenager? Be prepared to destroy Jews. Uh, as a Muslim within the Muslim Brotherhood, the tasks, the assignments for women and for men are different. Mm -hmm. Men will actually will fight the actual jihad. They will do the killing and uh, form militias or military, and they will commit the violence. The women are there to support the men and um, to command rights and forbid wrong. 
And how do I explain that concept? It is as a Muslim woman, first of all, you display, uh, you are, you know, you pledge allegiance to Islam and to the Prophet Muhammad. And that's not just something you say and you sit back. You have to do things. You have to dress the part. You have to pray five times a day. And you have to command right and forbid wrong. That is everyone in your family, your siblings, your parents, other people in the neighborhood, the wider family community, you have to keep telling them and reminding them to do that, to pray, to fast, etc., etc., to hate the Jew, to pray. So we would sit in prayer five times a day. And on Friday, it was the big prayers at the mosque. And then during the Ramadan, there were even bigger prayers, you know, when you come together in large numbers. And all of those would turn into cursing sessions for the Jews and the infidels especially the Jews. So actively, we were constantly doing something with our faith to express our hostility to the Jews and enemies of Islam. And when you when you do that all the time, and it's not only that, we were uh, raising money or monies that were raised were spent on sending us out and going to the poor to help people who are homeless, people who don't have food. And as we're giving them food and as we're handing them, you know, we're helping literally sometimes old women cross the road. We're also telling them to join us in cursing the Jews and cursing the infidel and uh, conveying that message of we versus them all the time. Yes, why we're helping people. As you're helping people. So as our charity... The charity we were expressing, which was a good thing, and it makes you feel good that you've helped other people. There were people who were poor and who were on the streets, beggars, uh, people who were disabled. Uh, so I grew up in Africa. The context I'm describe, describing is Nairobi, Kenya. There were a lot of polio patients on the streets. They can't walk, they're disabled, they don't have food. And what the Brotherhood members taught us to do was that we came together we put food together. We would bring these people food. We'd bring them into the mosque. We would give them clothes. And so that's an act of kindness and charity that's universal and admirable. But at the same time, we were nourishing them with hatred for the Jews and for the infidel. It's that's, uh, that's a, it, it, the hatred for the Jew, for the infidel, for the uh, non-Muslim, but especially for the Jew, because here we're talking about anti-Semitism. It is part of the dawa activism. It's part of the outreach. It's part of the charity. It's part of doing good and what's right. It's, uh, of course, shocking for us to hear this. Right. Um, it's, it's, um, it also makes me think of the, the most popular rant in the streets of Amsterdam today is Yahud or Jew or cancerous Jew. Yes. And it comes mainly from uh, Muslim uh, Dutch children, Muslim immigrant children. Um, does it have to do with the same kind of upbringing that you are describing? Absolutely. And Evelyn, you know, when I was a politician in Holland, 
and I was a researcher in Holland, that one of my first recommendations was to close Muslim schools. Muslim schools in the Netherlands and in other European countries were turned into madrasas, where these types of messages were conveyed. Again, with the same uh, cocktail of doing what's good, bringing people off the streets, keeping children at school, teaching them good manners. You know the context of Holland where there were a lot of young boys, Moroccan young boys, Turkish young boys, dropping out of school, becoming jobless, getting into trouble with the police. So you can imagine how their parents and the wider society are grateful for a force to come in mm. and to get them off the streets and to get them off that wrong path. And yet at the same time, instill into them this hatred for the Jews and for the unbeliever. And so in the Dutch context and the wider European context, a hostility towards their own host countries. Yeah. And we recently looked up uh, the Hamas website and there it's, it says um, in, in, in their, in their mind, Islam yeah. has to take over the whole world. And the first step is to do charity. And then there are other, other steps follow and it ends with overthrowing all governments. Is that also the same philosophy, the same in, in as, as, as what you learned in the Muslim Brotherhood and, um, it, and, it and is practice? Muslim, it is the Muslim Brotherhood outreach. It's Dawah. Yeah. And we just mentioned the schools, but it is the Muslim centers. You know how they turn so-called community centers into Islamic centers. It all sounds good. And yes, it begins with the steps of charity. And it's it begins with the steps of doing good. Tackling okay. societal problems like addiction, like crime, etc. And as just, they're doing that, I'm sorry, I just want to say I find this so hard to listen to because in Judaism it's the opposite. Not only is charity important, but we pray for everyone for peace in every service. We never say kill the others. I just it's so foreign to understand that young people are brought up from a very young age to want to kill others. I think it's very important as we uh, have, you know, this coexistence and living together in European and in American cities and villages that you don't take it for granted that religious activism in Christianity, religious activism in Judaism and religious activism in Islam is the same thing. <laughs> People are going around saying, oh, we're all of the Abrahamic religion. Oh, we're all doing the same thing. You're not. Um, the kind of activism that you see on the ground in Islamic centers, especially those run by the Muslim Brotherhood, by Hezbollah Tahrir, by the Deobandis, all of these activist, political, Islamist groups. It is not just charity and love. It is charity and hate. And it is about death. 
and it is about getting seeking power and getting power that is unchecked for Islam. It is deploying the mechanisms of freedom and the tools of democracy to take part in um, every single type of election from the local school board election to national and EU elections and United Nations, and then convey that same message. And it is done, it, it's got this religious shroud because people are asked to pray and to fast and to engage in charity, etc. But at the same time, they're also being asked to develop an enmity towards those who refuse to come to the call of Islam and those who we always suspect will never come to the call of Islam, the traitors, the Jews. That's how Jews are portrayed. And if we don't understand it, I don't think we can fight it. We can't combat what we don't understand. I think it's of the utmost importance that uh, all of us in the West start to understand this, that um, this philosophy exists. Um, and with it, because it's so hard for us to imagine, I think we should, I can, because I of that, take one. it into account when we talk about coexistence. Um, I would like to move on to today. Um, after, after October 7, we see um, a lot of protests uh, and also a lot of anti-Semitism. And it's not coming only from Muslims. Um, so is the anti-Semitism we see today around the globe, is it rooted in the same kind of racist ideas and bigotry as the hate against Blacks, uh, LGBT and other minorities? Or is this rooted in something else? I think now you have to take a map and look at the different locations. So you look at Gaza and what you saw on the 7th of October, young people in their 20s cross the border to Israel and commit the most heinous, most gruesome crimes we've seen since the Second World War. That is a culmination, an expression of the hatred that the people who live in Gaza are filled with towards the Jews. And if you look at schools in Gaza, uh, from preschool to elementary to secondary school to university. The, the people in Gaza are taught and other parts of Palestine, but also the wider Middle East, to view Jews with the kind of terrible animosity and hostility and enmity that they don't see them as human beings anymore, that they can actually shoot, cut them up, rape them, burn them, while filming all of that on GoPro cameras, call their parents after the fact and say, look, mom, look, dad, I've killed 10, 12 Jews, Allahu Akbar. And they get congratulations on the other end from their parents. So that is something I'd say, that's what's been done to the children of Gaza. 
they've been doctrinated and they've been indoctrinated over and over, been marinated in this hatred for Jews so that there's no mercy, there's no empathy. What's the reward for the hatred? Um, there's the immediate reward of a pat on the shoulder of belonging. There's the reward of admiration for being the one who has the courage to actually do something. So on the 7th of October, when these men in their 20s, they actually murdered Jews and called their parents, the parents on the other side, mashallah, these are expressions of admiration. It makes you a hero within your community. Um, it's, it's your sense of belonging, your family, for those who express the hatred, actually, and take it to the next level, the violence level. Their names are carved. Their names are, are remembered. Uh, there are poems for them. They're sang. So in this life already, the rewards are, you know, you become a celebrity. Uh, and the more you hate, the more you admired, and, uh, and and the more, yeah, you're celebrated, you belong. And then, of course, uh, the core tenet of uh, Islamism is that it's not about this life on this earth. It's about what comes in the afterlife what happens after death. And that's why I call it a cult of death because this life doesn't matter. You don't build things here. You don't innovate. You don't, it's all going, this is all transient. It's all about the afterlife. And in the afterlife, you get the eternal reward of being as close as possible to God's throne, the prophet, the disciples of the prophet, etc. So the reward is immediate celebrated on earth and in the afterlife you lead a life of glory and eternal peace now the virgins and things like that people like to delve into them but i think for the majority of people for them they don't think they're hating they think they're expressing they're worshiping god by killing the jew um they're, they're, they're expressing, they're just worshipping God by calling the infidels, the Christians, the non-Muslims to come to Islam. And if they refuse and you hate them and you kill them as a Muslim, that's merely expressing an act of worship. They don't see that as hate. And, and I think that's where the mismatch happens. It's not, it's, we see it as hate because we see an act of violence, killing someone, taking their life away. That's, and for what? For an ideology? For religion? We see that as hatred, but they don't see it as hatred. They see it as an act of worship. And now you move from there and you say, okay, so what was going on then in schools in Europe? What's going on online? And I keep coming back to da'wah and to the outreach. And on the one hand is the spread through this outreach in which they're piggybacking on the woke revolution where there is 
an animosity towards the so-called post-colonial powers, white supremacy. Uh, you know, the West is uh, founded on exploitation and so on and so forth. So the Gen Z, the Western youth, are at a place, people in their 20s and 30s, are at a place where they hate their own national identity, their national heritage, and their national histories because they've been told that they exploited and suppressed people. That's one. Number two, the story of decolonization, the, the discourse of decolonization is to point to the one place, Israel, that is trying, Israel as a state is trying to exist in an environment surrounded by hostile nations. But that's not how Israel is depicted in the decolonization discourse. It's depicted as the colonizer, the occupier. And so the, the youth of the West, people in their 20s and their 30s, are siding with the Palestinians because they think by doing that, they're correcting their own history. And then, of course, there is the age-old European anti-Semitism that never went away. And all of these anti-Semitisms, whether it's on the left or on the right, now I think they're finding a time when they can come out of the woodwork they feel emboldened and they can just say, but we're just supporting the children of Gaza. We just want a ceasefire. We have nothing against the state of Israel. If we ask for a ceasefire, does that make us into anti-Semites? That's what you're getting now. And in America, the, the American students, the brightest, the best of the best, uh, most elite universities in masses, uh, in big crowds, uh, were were glorifying and are glorifying Hamas. There is not the old anti-Semitism. What what makes them so uh, proud of Hamas? Not even like if they don't see that Jewish victims of of it, it was on October 8 already, as if Jewish victims of what happened on October seven are not human beings. Like they cannot see any more Jews as human beings as, as the German population couldn't see it anymore um, in the Nazi times. How, how, how did that come that far? Well, pro-Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood organizations were active in America for a very long time. And for a very long time, we thought that, you know, they were exposed in 1993. They were exposed again after 9-11-2001. And I think there's been a sense, especially after the defeat of ISIS, there was a lull. And I think a lot of Americans took it for granted that radical political Islam had been defeated. And I think this delusion that it had been defeated was strengthened by all the normalization talks that were going on between Israel and Arab countries like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, etc. <laughs> so that is one part of the story. The other part of the story was, I just talked to you about this so-called decolonization discourse, which in America is the critical race theory or critical justice theory, 
the woke revolution as an umbrella, I think we had underestimated to what extent the radical Islamists and the woke revolutionaries would form an alliance. Of course, if you look at the optics, you see AOC, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez with Ilhan Omar, but I think most of us did not really understand how uh, tight those alliances are. And we didn't also understand how widespread that was on campus. So the numbers I'm looking at now, even I find them shocking. I've been following the development of the woke from about the time of uh, Occupy Wall Street, when I didn't take it seriously, to after the George Floyd killings, when I took it very seriously. And I thought it was a very small percentage of uh, campus students who actually uh, were woke or believed in any of these tenets. I think most of it was just virtue signaling. Uh, but I think I was wrong, and so are most other people. And this is, when I say wrong, it is we underestimate it. Because I'm always trying to be careful not to overestimate, not to exaggerate, and to see things in perspective. And I think in this case, we actually underestimated what was going on in American campuses and the alliance, the unholy alliance between these far-left primitivist groups that are woke and the uh, Muslim Brotherhood pro-Palestine activism. Students it, for Justice in Palestine, for instance. But isn't it true that Middle Eastern departments in these elite universities have been funded for many, many years, legitimately, I mean, legally, by uh, outside forces. And that's also what Americans have not paid attention to. Yes, I think to a certain degree, uh, as ISIS was coming, uh, emerging and had occupied territory in Syria and in Iraq, I think there was a great deal of alarm that was going on among the ruling classes in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the UAE, and they started to clamp down on the Muslim Brotherhood in particular. The Muslim Brotherhood is banned in these countries. And what Saudi Arabia did actively is to stop the funding. The country that hasn't stopped the funding is Qatar. Um, another country that is an active supporter of Muslim Brotherhood networks is Turkey. But some of these uh, Gulf countries like the UAE, Saudi Arabia, they stopped the funding. But if you want to follow the money, I think you should talk to our friend, Sam Westrop, who has now shown us that leave alone money coming from outside the United States. There's a lot of funding coming to these organizations from inside the United States. He has seen a network of these 501c3s and the way pro-Hamas organizations and networks raise money in the United States and raise money in Europe, even though it's a proscribed, Hamas is a proscribed institution. But again, what most people do not understand is the duplicitousness, the duality 
in the activism that is the Muslim Brotherhood and shows its religious face. And then the other side of the coin that you see the Palestinian flags, but it holds, it gives you a secular face. The women don't wear headscarves. The men are dressed in jeans and t-shirts and look very modern and they behave in a very modern way. And that I think knocks researchers and other observers off and makes them think that they're dealing with a non-religious group. But in fact, Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood and other Palestinian activists, it's the same, it's the same groups. And, and they are very, very religious. And you can tell that they're very religious because during these uh, demonstrations that were going on in the European cities and in American cities, all the religious symbols are there. All the da'wah symbols are there. The shouts of Allahu Akbar, the shahada, all the the ummah this and that, it's all there. So if you want to see it, you can see it. Yeah, and we have to learn to see, yeah. I think I had but to learn have, it. I didn't know. Learn, you know what, like khaybar, khaybar. You have to know what that means. Right. You know, people are beginning to understand the slogan from the river to the sea, what that means. And see, that's now out in the public discourse. Bring khaybar, khaybar also. You have to tell people about that story. <laughs> so there's, I think when you want to fight anti-Semitism, we can't do this in one, uh, in one podcast. But you've dedicated uh, your entire series of podcasts to this very important subject, and I think it's very, very important. But bring in people who can explain the religious background, you know, take you all the way back to Medina and what happened, but also to the Nazi period and how the Nazi propaganda came into the Middle East became intertwined with the so-called um, emancipation or liberation of Palestine and how that got twisted and then how that spread to the rest of the Muslim world. That's very important for you to understand. I think that's great, great advice. Um, Phyllis, over to you. But do you have a message for how the Jewish communities of the world can deal with this? Let's say, let's say we've now advanced, which we haven't really understanding. Now, what do we do? I think uh, Jewish communities who want to fight anti-Semitism have to get into the game of discourses, of fighting propaganda, of you know, getting into the battle of ideas. And you can't do that if you don't understand it. So there are members of the Jewish community, prominent leaders of the Jewish community, who uh, feel sorry for other groups that are persecuted. And they give without asking questions and they get involved without asking questions. Uh, when this whole woke revolution started, I was stunned by the sheer number of Jewish activists for Black Lives Matter, 
uh, in the transgender community, you know what ADL was doing with transgender. I was just thinking, wow, you know, just sit back, take a pause and look at what the exact same groups are saying about the state of Israel, what they're saying about Jews. Uh, give it a minute. Think about these things. Educate yourself before you lunge into supporting this, that, or the other group just because they present themselves as victims. Um, and any group activity, any all of these tribal woke stuff, uh, it can never be good for Jewish people, ever. Because I'll say, I'll, let me put it this way. Anybody who uh, rejects objectivity, an objective reality sooner or later will be an enemy of Israel, enemy of the Jews, because they start to, it's easy if you start to say you're just going to go and believe in subjectivities, you very soon come to believe in conspiracy theories. And anti Semitism is the biggest, oldest conspiracy theory in the world. Right. And so, you have to really be, yeah, I, what do I say to my Jewish friends? It's the best way to fight is through knowledge. And you've got to know your enemy. You've got to know your enemy. You've got to be able to tell who's your enemy and who's your friend. And if you can't tell them apart, then you can't fight them. I, I think that's very important as we end up, because I think American Jews, and now I'm speaking as an American Jew, we A, are gullible, and B, we're not willing, very most of us, to see who's an enemy. We'd like to believe everyone's a friend. And that could be a terrible, terrible mistake that leads to our own downfall. So this has been such an important, important conversation. Is there anything you'd like to end with before we thank you and our listeners? Just that... I wish you all the best and in whatever way I can help, I would like to help. And I want to end on a positive note and say, um, Israel is going to survive and thrive. And the Jewish people have always survived and they'll thrive and they'll flourish um, because they're on the side of good, which is on the side of life life and liberty and that's all that the jewish people want and the state of israel that's what it's about and that's going to win can i say amen to that <laughs> i'm trying not to cry anyway thank you so 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 much for coming on our show thank our listeners for listening for those of you who want to know more about evelyn myself or our work you can go to never again is now podcast which is on youtube Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And as we end every episode, we say, please speak up against anti-Semitism and all hate. And thank you, Ayan, for being my teacher for already 23 years. <laughs> <laughs>